It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Sam Leitner Jr. is a prolific root developer who's perhaps best known for developing the climbing in southern Thailand and helping turn Riley and Tanzai beaches into the destinations they are. He's also established many routes here in the American West and done the heroic work of replacing hundreds of anchor bolts under the American Safe Climbing Association. All right. Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but the end is nigh. The end of climbing is here. Um, it's, it's right in front of us. So basically, this podcast is to is to say farewell to climbing um, as we know it. R.I.P. to uh, to rock climbing. Um, so I don't know how you guys feel about that, but it's does it over. mean that we won't have to do um, podcasts every month, Chris? <laughs> what do you mean every? My month? elbows will stop hurting. I do this every week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more than that. No, but we are here to talk uh, in the middle of the comment period that's happening this month. Um, about the new management proposal for wilderness anchors. And that's been blowing up the internet lately, blowing up Instagram, causing verbal warfare on there, um, even between climbers about this whole thing. So we did a podcast about it a little while ago where we were more shooting from the hip, but today we have an expert with us who's who's far more informed than we are. And we are also more informed. But anyway, welcome to the show, Sam Leitner, someone who's been involved in access literally around the world for his whole climbing career. So welcome to the oh, show, Sam. Thanks for having me here, guys. I, it's going to be fun. So why don't we get started that way of just talking a little bit about your history with access, how you've been involved with it, uh, your own personal sort of climbing has been involved in it as far as you being a first ascensionist. Um, as well as someone who is avidly replacing bolts, uh, fixing up anchors. That's kind of been one of your missions over the last uh, couple decades. Also creating whole climbing areas in some cases. So tell us a little bit about access, how it applies to you, what your expertise is, how you've been involved over the years. I think I first got involved in an access issue when I was 19. There was... Uh, a rumor going around Jackson, I grew up in Jackson, Wyoming, there was a rumor going around that uh, the Park Service was going to close off. There wasn't a trail up to the cliff at Blacktail Butte. There was just a scree slope and it was it was kind of a mess. They were just going to close off being able to walk there. And I went in and sat down with the superintendent of Grand Teton National Park and started talking about how we needed to maintain access to that top roping area. It was a top roping area at the time. And uh, uh, that's when I just first got involved. And then there's uh, just always been an issue coming up uh, over the years. Uh, I did anchor replacement at Vidavu when quarter-inch button heads were going out of style, especially if they were 25 years old. New bolts needed to be placed in and in there. And the rebolting has always been a function. I've done rebolting all over the world, but it's always been a function of access because we've always recognized that the more accidents you have, the more often access to the cliff is going to come up as a, a good way to, to, to stop those accidents is just to ban climbing. That was the big worry when we started the whole, the whole rebolting thing in Thailand was, wow, if somebody gets killed here, they're just going to shut it down. 
that's when we started that. But yeah, it's always it's, been about access. Yeah, and it's important to note that not only were you one of the original developers in places like Riley, but yeah, you you also recognize that what you guys had been doing um, as far as hardware wasn't working anymore and sort of spearheaded uh, the replacement of that. And also, you know, went deep into metallurgy and oh, blues and everything to try to create something that would last. And um, I think, you know, seaside limestone climbing worldwide now owes uh, a little bit of debt to to that research because, I mean, Kalimnos and Sardinia are just like two places I can think all over Italy, these um, all the Mediterranean climbing have been running into these same problems. Not quite as harsh because they're not tropical, but uh, but still very short lifespan to to plated steel in those places. And and stainless steel was just as short. That was the that's the sad thing is what we came up with was the only thing that will work is titanium, and it does work. But titanium is expensive, difficult to to play with. So yeah, and then one more thing before we get get any further is um is your in you know kind of involvement or or connection anyway to um the original start of the access fund and and where you've been with that over the years as well um officially and unofficially. I, I'm always honored that Armando Menical he was the uh, really the founder of the access fund. He always says, "Yeah, you were my second phone call. Yvonne was my first phone call. Yvonne Chenard." Uh, to to get the thing going. And the way it started was, you know, a lot of younger climbers don't realize it, but there was a war going on between climbers in the 80s over sport climbing existing versus everything needed to be traditional kind of thing. And the Alpine Club at the time, the old guard of the Alpine Club was absolutely opposed to sport climbing. They thought it was just wrong. And there was a recognition by people in the Alpine Club, including Armando Menical, that access was becoming an issue. There were getting to be enough climbers. It was becoming something that had to be dealt with, and the Alpine Club needed to deal with it. But the Alpine Club establishment said, yeah, but we won't do it if it has to do with this sport climbing business because we just think that's wrong. And Armando said, no, it has to be about all climbing. And sport climbing seems to be getting to be a pretty popular form of climbing. You're going to have to, and they wouldn't. So he said, fine, we'll take the access side of the Alpine Club out of it, and it will become its own entity. And then the Alpine Club can wash their hands of sport climbing. And that's what happened. That was in 1991. The access fund was formed. And the Alpine Club basically said, okay, we're done with dealing with access. That's going to be Armando's little thing. And he put together a board and, you know, started getting people together who could donate to it and began working on access. And, uh, you know, we owe that guy for doing that. And he made, you know, he had a bunch of his friends mad at him and stuff for, for embracing this crazy sport climbing stuff. But if he hadn't done that, there have been multiple times where we probably would have lost an enormous amount of climbing and very likely wouldn't have sport climbing on most public land. So sport climbing would be this weird thing that you went and did over in Europe and most of the United States it would have never really caught on. So we owe, we owe Armando for that. That's an uh, amazing testament. I never heard it put quite that way, um, but that's super, super cool history. And uh, I appreciate that perspective that you bring to to that history so of course we're talking about the um these uh twin legislations that are circulating the park service and the forest service bureaus that seem to 
uh, be hostile to uh, bolting and not sport climbing per se, but but why don't we just lay out the problem? Maybe you could just give us a high level overview of what it is that is taking place in our government right now. Well, there have been over the years there have been multiple attempts to take some language from the Wilderness Act, which I think is 1964, uh, that says there can't be an installation in a wilderness area. And there have been attempts to claim that bolts or pitons or even slings around trees are an installation. In the past, most of those attempts to do that have been, let's say, sort of rogue uh, superintendents or whatever of, of a given area who've just said, you know what, I don't like bolts or I do, I, we, don't, we don't want this in our area. So we're going uh, to use the Wilderness Act to try and make it so that these things can't be there. And we're going to de- declare that bolts and various anchors are installations. And you know that's happened in multiple national forests and multiple parks. And the Access Fund has stepped in and been there to stop it. And we've been able to, you know, stop the forward momentum of it before it really got going. And the fear was always that, you know, if it, if it happens in the Mojave National Forest or wherever, whatever place it, it happened to be, it would then set precedent. And that precedent would be used by wilderness areas all over the country. Okay, might have done that, but we got it stopped. The big problem with what's happening right now is it's not coming from one of these individual areas. You know, it's not coming from the Shoshone National Forest, for instance. It's coming from the very top of the Forest Service and especially the National Park Service. So rather than have one little individual group out there in the far corner of Washington state saying, we want to do this, it's actually coming out of Washington, D.C. And they're able to, if they want, pull everybody in on it. And that's what would happen if if this went through. It's a not a it's not a ban on future anchors. It is a ban and removal of all anchors on wilderness. And everybody's like, okay, so that's like deep in the Wind River Range. No, your national parks are all wilderness areas. Now there's different levels of wilderness, uh, but you know it's something like. Like in Yosemite, it's everything above 4,300 feet, I think it is. So it's 4,500 feet. 4,500 feet. Yeah. Everything above there, you would not be allowed to have anchors. No repel anchors, no slings around trees, no you know, pitons, none of that stuff. Not to mention what it would do to, say, sport climbing areas that were in, in those zones. So all of these places that are wilderness, have wilderness designation, which is all national parks, as well as wilderness areas like the Fitzpatrick wilderness area and the wind rivers or, you know, Sierra wilderness areas, so forth. All of those places would be banned from having new anchors and the uh, impetus would be there so that all anchors in those places could be removed in the future. Yeah. And, and just to, you know, put a point on it is, is Yosemite's 95% wilderness. And cause I just looking this up a little while ago and um, you know, and, 4,500 feet is about 500 feet up El Cap because El Cap's roughly uh, the base of it's around 4,000 feet elevation. So it's it's all roots on El Cap, um, you know, after yeah. the first three pitches or whatever, four pitches, which is interesting. I mean, it, it, 
like the wilderness designation and and there's there's all this uh you know there's all this idealism in in that bill and what it created and um but then there are these ways in which it, which it's been applied sort of arbitrarily um cuz it's fascinating that they why not include the valley in that well then be, you'd have to rip out all that concession and stuff you know it's like yeah they're not going to do that they're not going to do that cuz that's you know that's like the the total dump of the Yosemite Valley. So I think it's important too to just for listeners to understand, and I'm sure Sam, you can color this in with uh, your your knowledge on this history. But climbing precedes the Wilderness Act by you know decades, and the Wilderness Act specifically uh, mentions climbing as a legitimate activity. So we have this decades long precedent of climbers, you know, climbing in wilderness and placing fixed anchors in wilderness that precedes the wilderness act and also as i understand it the that you know that term of art of installations is what perhaps they had in mind was more like if you're a rancher you can't like build a fence in joshua tree to to corral your cattle or some something along those lines or you can't you know pay just build your own private road through you know a wilderness yeah. area to get to you know your cabin or something like that like there's certain it's just a way to to control the land and protect it. So I, I don't know if you'd like to add anything to that, but I think it's important to to. I to think you I think you hit it on the head. They they intended it for major stuff. You know, there could be a trail there, but there can't be a paved path. Uh, you know, we're not going to put you know septic systems in for campgrounds and things like that. Uh, it, it, that was the intention, and yeah, they they recognized that climbing was. I mean. Climbers were behind the Wilderness Act. And I, as far as I can tell, most of my friends, you know, most, most climbers think of themselves as environmentalists. This is just a, an extremist view of the Wilderness Act. And they're using it because it's because there are some extremists that want this done. And uh, it was never the intention. And yeah, climbing predates it. Anchors predate the Wilderness Act, climbing in all virtually all of these wilderness areas had taken place. So within the management plan, there is this language that's around giving sort of this out for anchors in, in allowing for this MRA, which is the minimum requirements assessment. So in, in other words, like reviewing said anchor or the possibility, I think is in there of of applying to put in an anchor with an MRA. Yeah. And, you know, I have my own feelings about what kind of bureaucracy that would involve and how I feel like it's just sort of a ban in any other words. Um, yeah. For two reasons. That's what because it is. Because A, the process is probably lengthy and, and there probably aren't resources for it. And second, again, it can be applied arbitrarily by, by the management of any given area. And that's what worries me about this. As, as, as I've, I've like interacted with climbers who feel like, you know that well look we've got this they're going to allow it they're just not going to allow all of it i just feel like the language is in there for for again extreme superintendents to go forth with what they've always wanted and you know currently we've got a bit of a pitched battle uh in the black canyon here in in colorado literally between the management and the climbing rangers even um about climbing and and certainly i feel like this management then gives this superintendent the language to be able to just squash that dissent and be done with it. That's um, absolutely and I, and I, the case. And I, 
I can't imagine that he's not uh, looking at that possibility. Sure. And so that that's why it, it feels a little bit like, oh yeah, we do have this out for you guys, but I don't think it really is one. And what what's your feeling no. on that? They, that? That's their selling point. Oh no, we're gonna we're gonna let it just happen with you know, we're gonna create this whole new thing of you can apply and you'll be able to legitimately do what you do, and it won't be you know this this thing that's unmoderated by anyone else. And that will legitimize it. That's that's how they sell it. But they know that's never going to happen. I mean, how on earth with $34 trillion in debt right now, you're going to come up with an entire branch of every national park service, every, uh, you know, that's just going to go out and they're going to look at every possible climb and decide whether or not that's there. Not only that, the way you're going to have to do it is, let's say you're you're going up El Cap, you want to do a new route on El Cap, you're going to have to sit at the bottom of El Cap and map out every single anchor you're going to need in that 3,000 feet of climbing and put it in writing that is exactly where it's going to go. And then some person's going to have to come over and go, okay, yeah, I can see why you'd want that there. I can see why you'd want that there. Yeah, here's your rubber stamp. Go ahead, get on it. They know that's not going to happen. It's it doesn't. That's not how climbing works either. Like we don't know where we need anchors, and no bureaucrat's going to want to put their their stamp of approval on it and then have the anchor be in the wrong spot. Like it's just not going to work. But they're going to sell it to us as if it is going to work that way. Yeah, it's hard not to be too cynical about all of this. I mean, I think it's like that. <laughs> it sounds like this. There, there's this very kind of paranoid cynicism that's underlying our our comments right now. But I, I don't think it's unfounded. And I'm kind of curious to hear your take on where this all came from, like how this, how we got to this point. Because I think that climbers may or may not understand like what the forces were behind driving this this push and getting this in front of of uh, Congress at the moment. That's a really good Pandora's box we're opening there or, you know, a good rabbit hole to be going down because they, uh, if there's a famous saying by the policy guys at, at the Access Fund of, it seems like 90% of what we do here is put out fires that climbers start. And that's actually the truth. You know, climbers could, climbers are very good caretakers of the wilderness, but we also do leave ropes up and we do leave white marks and all that stuff. And we're not a real big group. We're, so basically we become visible, but we don't have a, a big political base to pull from. And that makes it so that we are actually good to go after as, you know, a, a quiver in the or an arrow in the quiver. Ah, we managed to save save the wilderness by doing this. We managed to save the wilderness by doing that. You know, they're not going to go after oil and gas and, you know, things that you where you can't win. Nobody's going to try and attack the park service for having the the cables up the <laughs> up the backside of half dome um because it's the park service wants it there. They're going to go after the little guy. And mm-hmm. we are the little guy, but with a lot of visibility. That's one reason I think. There's also there's people out there. And when you say they, think, like who they, who like that's they're a, yeah. coming after us, like who who is that? Because I, they like, would be the yeah. more extreme groups of environmentalists. Um, there's one specific one out of Montana called Wilderness Watch that 
very much has it in for for climbing, you know, and I consider myself an environmentalist. This is the funny thing, like, but everything's in moderation, right? But there are people in that group that think you shouldn't wear a watch in the wilderness. Now, frankly, you kind of don't need a watch when you're in the wilderness, but I think that's taking it to a bit of an extreme that having this mechanical little device on your wrist is a problem somehow for wilderness. There are people who actually think that way. And we are one of the focuses on that. I know I'm going to get lashed at a bit here for being sort of as if I'm an anti-environmentalist. I'm not saying that at all. We all want clean climbing areas. We all want, you know, we want to have wilderness, but there's got to be a reasonable level. And it's not reasonable to think the government is going to create the infrastructure for climbers to be able to pass their their you know any rock climb they wanted to do and it's also not not reasonable to think that the government is going to be able to understand it because we don't even understand we don't know where our anchors go when we go up on the wall till we've sorted it out so there's a reasonable level here and this is an unreasonable approach and it's an unreasonable approach to say any anchor is a violation of the wilderness act again because of just if for no other reason, what you said before, those anchors, there were anchors in the wilderness before. I'm glad that you mentioned Wilderness Watch because they are, I think, the ground zero for a lot of this animus. And uh, one of their policy directors, uh, Dana Johnson, um, wrote a horrible piece on climbing and wilderness and bolting that was circulated sometime in the last year that um, got climbers up in arms and uh, rightfully so. And um, I think that I've heard kind of one of their alumni has been really the point person who's kind of spearheaded a lot of this policy that we're now having to deal with. And I think that you're right to kind of highlight that sense of conflict that climbers might feel in wanting to think of themselves as environmentalists and and champions of, of these you know wild places, but also you know being able to um, impart our uh, mark on on those lands in in a way that's appropriate and. And, and so forth with our sport. And there is this like very interesting kind of conflict that I think climbers feel, which is like, oh, this is all our fault. Like we're the ones who are putting out that the access fund has to, you know, put out our fires and we're the ones who are, you know, just placing bolts in this like rogue renegade style. And this is, this is, um, you know, all of this is coming down on us because of uh, the fact that there's too many of us and we don't know how to appropriately use the lands and, and so there's this kind of, um, yeah, just, uh, I don't know, just like self-flagellation. Yeah, self-flagellation. And I, I don't, I don't, I really don't think that climbers understand the degree to which a lot of this comes from outside of our community, from people who fundamentally misunderstand what climbing is and see it as hostile to this like kind of very pure vision of what wilderness must be and anything that crosses those, uh, you know, those those markers is is um is an enemy worth targeting and and I love your point about just climbing being the the small easy target in the room of of all the possible threats that you know could face wilderness because you know if you know Halliburton or whatever wanted to get some oil in in some wilderness land they'd be able to do that but for some reason climbers with our one little trail and contained you know crag with a few anchor bolts is is um is more of a threat than than you know big money coming into and I, to use I the land or the Yellowstone or the Yellowstone Lodge dumping uh, sewage into rivers. Yeah, would right. that be in there? 
up in your yeah, I, I should probably <laughs> I should probably point out like when I said the 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 you know putting out fires that climbers create what I meant by that was we do you know have an impact every person on this planet has an impact and climbers do have a visual impact uh on on a given place maybe you want to go and look up at El Capitan and not see a single yellow jacket up there you know it just bothers you that a a human being could be on that wall. Okay, you have a point. We get up there, but is it a reasonable point to say we're just going to ban a thing because this person doesn't like occasionally seeing a person up there? And we do have an impact also in when we occasionally screw up. You know, we we all know, we've all read where, you know, when there were some bolts placed uh with a power drill on El Cap and they got busted. Yeah. This this stuff does happen, but that's not our that's not the majority of what climbing is about. And this ruling would effectively end the majority of climbing. I mean, it would it would just basically stop it. And um, what I'm trying to say is that's not a reasonable approach. There's a middle road way. There's not an you don't have to go down the extreme road that Wilderness Watch wants uh, wants the government to be pushing through. And you shouldn't say, you know what, everywhere on wilderness land is appropriate for high density sport climbing areas. I think we would all agree. Yeah, that's yeah, there's there are places for that. And there are places where we don't want that, where we don't want crowds and and large numbers of people. Climbers would say that. So there's an appropriate mid-level and this attempt to tie the Wilderness Act to all fixed anchors is an extremist approach um, that would be bad for us. Yeah, and I'd like to sort of tease that out because I mean, I'm 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 interacting with climbers who who are basically like, yeah, we should, you know, we have to just accept this. Um, there's too many of us, as Andrew's saying, and there are these these cases of degradation of the wilderness out there, and they and a lot of people are focusing on you know sport climbs. Right, because right. there's plenty of the climbing community, most of them over, you know, fifty. I'm over fifty, but who are still pissed about sport climbing. And but what but what what they keep saying and, and I think is here is that like and I think this was pointed out in the whole Joshua tree part of things was like this particular climb, which is is well bolted and therefore safe and therefore popular, is causing degradation to the wilderness because of say, you know, plant life at the base or whatever and but that and and andrew have been over this like the bolts themselves are not the 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 causing they're inert pieces of of steel that you know they're the mineral taken out of the ground in one place and put in the ground in another place it's not yeah and so my my kind of comeback and i think what you're saying too is this this blanket thing where we just like destroy climbing to me is like you know if you found uh, you know, if you went up into one of the Yosemite backcountry campsites and you found some trash on the ground, you're like, all right, fuck it, close it. We're we're taking the trail out and we're taking out the campground, you know, because somebody just couldn't fucking deal with this shit right. or put their tent up and killed some more grass over here. You know, it happens. And what they do is on a case by case basis, they mitigate it. And that's, you know, that's why this thing is so scary is it's, is it's a fire hose or a flamethrower, rather, on climbing, because there are these cases on, on a case-by-case basis where there has been some degradation. 
And the thing that also bugs me, and I think one of the things that I find really strange about this, and I think a lot of climbing oriented parks, at least at the kind of ranger level, are worried about this is that is that you are about to blow up this relationship that we've been working on for for decades between these administrations and climbers. And my point is, is that, you know, these alarms were set off about El Cap, ropes on top, people shitting everywhere, all this degradation on El Cap. And guess who came in to largely deal with that when the alarms went off? It was the climbers, you know, the facelift and not just the facelift, but the the education that's come from the facelift. Has it cured the problem completely? No, but year by year, it's getting better and better because of the efforts of climbers via the Access Fund. Now, the American Alpine Club, they back to your history lesson, they, you know, they got back into the Access game and they, they pulled the stick out their asses about the bolts a long, long time ago. Um, not entirely. I'm sure there's a few left, but, right. um, but yeah, I mean, and that's just the thing is like, there are ways in which this, the, the park service and the forest service can engage climbers and climbers largely will step up, you know, other than the rogues, you know, and, and well, we, we, have we are a user group, but we're yeah. a, we're a pretty darn responsible user group. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the very things that the park service doesn't want, most of them we don't want either. You know, uh, we don't want poop all over El Cap and ropes that hang there for three straight years and just become tat. And, you know, all of that stuff takes away from our experience, too. So we try and clean that up. But you're right. Relationships have been building over time as climbing has become more mainstream. There have become more climbers uh, that are in those government positions and go, you know, I understand what they're doing there. This makes sense to me that that relationship has been growing and this you're right. It's a flamethrower. This just pours gasoline all over this thing. And it, 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 it will not be good for those land managers. And it definitely won't be good for us. There's, there, you know what, there's something else too, is that you've got a group maybe here of, of professional almost politicians, bureaucrat, you know, very high-ranking people in in a couple of government agencies that are that have their trigger on this flamethrower. They probably don't even realize that the middle of the Wind River range is not ever going to be, even if you were to make every single anchor totally legal, you 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 put in electric power to it and all that kind of stuff. It's never going to be Rifle State Park. It's too far to go to. You got to go 15 miles and over two passes to get there. There are appropriate places for sport climbing. There are appropriate places for traditional climbing. But anchors are a part of all climbing. To just say, we're going to just ban all anchors. uh, You know, it doesn't, it's a blanket approach to something that needs to have nuance. Well, you're touching on something that's been a hobby horse of mine over the last year that I've um, been kind of pissed about, which is this, I just find these uh, terms about sport climbing and traditional climbing and the the, the nuances around which, where anchors get placed and how many of them and what, what that means. These are all very internal specific climber questions that I don't find to be helpful for this conversation. And I, I would, I wish that we would kind of get past our thinking um, that is influenced from the scars of the of the, our bolt wars from the eighties that we're, you know, we're still rehashing today to me, there's just climbing and 
to the degree that there's, you know, a root has more bolts or less bolts or whatever the bolt count is, the root is going to be, assuming it's put up in, in good style and in good faith and, and it's going to be have an appropriate amount of bolts on it. We might quibble whether there's one too many or two too many, but it's not going to be like 400 too many. You know what I mean? Like it's in the ballpark of what would be an acceptable way to establish a route because we as climbers want the route to be a good experience. And the route is only going to be a good experience if there's an appropriate amount of hardware on it. And so their incentives are aligned to create, to kind of minimize bolt placement in general, in my, in my view. And so all of that just leads back to this fundamental uh, right and uh, thing that I think that we need to be able to kind of rally behind as a group, which is we are the best stewards for our fixed anchor placements. We place fixed anchors appropriately. And, you know, this is not something that that can or should be outsourced to bureaucrats who don't climb. And so, yeah, I, I think that like a lot of these words like spore climbing have become these scare words that people at Wilderness Watch like to like to use as these um, as these in scare quotes to kind of make people afraid that all of a sudden this pristine wilderness area is going to look like, uh, you know, movement gym on a Tuesday night, which uh, to your point, like it, it's if it's 15 miles and two passes away is never going to happen, regardless of what the bolt count is. And so I, I find those the, these kind of climber uh, born pathologies of, of trad versus sport to be unhelpful in, in this context. I wish we would move past that. Um, you're right. You're absolutely right. We know where bolts go. And we also have this built in thing about bolts that is uh, we keep them at a reasonable number. And that is, yeah, you don't want to overbolt it. You don't want to be constantly clipping or you don't want to appear that you're a wimp uh and you've got to be top roping your whole way up the thing um you know we we do that out of just the way the sport works so and and like chris was saying you know we have over the years started to build this good relationship with a lot of these land managed local level land managers cuz they've come to recognize that that there's not this big problem going on in these places but an extremist will come along and say any single bolt out there is a big problem. And that that's what fuels this kind of extreme approach to the Wilderness Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to flip the I'd like to flip the critique on its head and and you know, when people are like, what gives you the right to bolt in that area? You could instead say, like, well, what you know, what are your reasons for why that's a problem? I mean, it, it, to me, bolting and the uh, the existence of bolts in a piece of rock, is fully compatible with every tenant of wilderness, which is to say that it doesn't impact, you know, the flora and fauna. It doesn't necessarily detract from the character. Uh, most people, if they're hiking, even in a place like Joshua Tree, they do, just do not even see the bolts themselves. Like they, you'd have to be very attuned to know where to look and to know what you're looking at to to even be able to see that. And I mean, El Cap is littered with bolts, but you can stand in the meadow all day and not see a single one of them. And so a lot of the criticism that people uh, like Dana Johnson at the Wilderness Watch want to impugn on bolting is, uh, I find to be just ridiculous. 
that's what we as a as a group need to be accepting. And there's a few things we could be doing that will help the access fund and will help us maintain it, you know, maintain access to these crags because effectively if you eliminate all anchors. And by the way, I think if I understand the writing of this thing correctly, it's not just bolts that they're talking about. It's a sling around a tree is an anchor too. You you know, a sling around a horn. You you know, you go up Pangora, you're gonna have to down climb Pangora and remove all the anchors as you go down because you can't leave behind one sling around a horn to rappel on. That's my understanding. And that's I mean, that's just so extreme. And there's a few things we could be doing, you know, we need to write, you need to write your, uh, your representative at a Washington level now and tell them, look, I'm a climber and I vote, and this is a major issue to me. Um, we should be writing and telling them about the park act, uh, protect America's rock climbing that the access fund is, is trying to get in, which just basically all it's going to say is that rock climbing and the use of anchors is a legitimate thing. That's a reasonable deal that was assumed when the Wilderness Act was done. But like you said, taking an extreme point of view, you flip it on its ear and there's not much of a defense for it. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the Protect America's Rock Climbing Act. That's been the Access Fund's kind of signature uh, proposal that they have gotten into the legislative uh, machine over the last year. I uh, I did speak with um, Eric Murdoch on the phone pri- in a private conversation about a month ago about that because he, he just wanted to correct me on some misunderstandings I think I had about it. And I think it is an important piece of legislation that I think could really benefit this conversation. Um, and I'm not sure if you could, if you know exactly what the timeline is or status is of the of the act, but just underscore what you're saying, it, it does establish as a legitimate use of land the the ability to to place anchors. And again, my my concern is has always been just this like cynical interpretation of these laws where you could say, Yeah, you can place bolt. It just needs to go through, you know, four hundred loopholes and, you know, Joe down from from Washington DC needs to come out and look at your your anchor bolts and he's he's booked for the next two years. So you can We'll schedule him for 2026, and and you know he'll he'll make a trip out to to see if this, you know, <laughs> it, right. We need an environmental impact yeah. statement done, but the guys doing that are up in the North Shore of uh, Alaska right now, making sure that an oil well can go in. So, um, give it a while, and we'll decide if your anchor can be there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're gonna dig a giant pit in the permafrost up there but uh let's let's talk about this bolt that you want to put on el cap <laughs> it's like no big deal yeah we yeah. got you we got you yeah totally i it's so i mean if you're I, i've been kind of appealing to to the the conservative side like look if you're a fiscal conservative this is whack like yeah. w- w- like the amount of money involved in this cuz you know it, oh no we'll get a private contractor to go out and check your bolts and that private contractor is going to be like yeah you got to give me 10 grand to 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 wrap that 40 foot clip how's that sound <laughs> okay well sounds good to me like let's just put it in a line item you know like yeah. it's just such this boondoggle of all the bad <laughs> things and if you're like if you're anti government like big government, it's like this is gonna take this huge bureaucracy and add a giant branch to it. Or it won't, because they'll just be like I mean, that's the other thing about yeah. the language in this thing is they'll be like, Oh yeah, that thing we said you we were gonna do, we don't have the budget for that, so go fuck yeah. yourself. Easiest like, way to deal with it is just say yeah. no. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, can't do that. Yeah. No. So, I mean, it just has to be a middle ground. I think the climbers out there that are wondering which side of this to be on, just be on the side of that climbers when asked and when approached by these, these agencies, we've stepped up in multiple, multiple ways to address these concerns about degradation of wilderness. We've, we've done it over and over and over again, and we can continue to do that. And look at the facelift. Don't look at the one person who, who you know, illegally bolted that crag. The facelift is the voice of climbing, not the wingnut, not the, the outlier, you know, petroglyph bolter. Those are not climbing. But the focus media and I think attention of these politicians goes on those people. And it's like every sport, like I said, hikers, the most supposedly legit users of these, these wilderness areas, they fuck up too occasionally. They get out there and they they let their bear bag get ripped open and all that trash gets spread all over the forest. Like it happens, but we don't just shut the the whole damn thing down when those things happen. And that's kind of the way I feel about this. Yeah. And not to mention 10 feet of hiking trail displaces more rock than all the bolts in the entire Wind River range. You know, but yeah, there's always going to be some level of impact, right? I mean, you and I right now are contributing to global warming by talking. Uh, but, but, but using are you servers, just going to, all right. Using servers that use electricity. Yeah. Too, don't yeah. I mean, it's, you've got to have a reasonable approach to it. And yeah. this has not been a reasonable approach to the Wilderness Act. Yeah. So Sam, um, I'm, you mentioned, you know, it's writing into, um, our, uh, representatives and I use that, uh, term loosely. Um, <laughs> You mean you mean Lauren? Are you talking about Lauren, Andrew? Andrew? Oh. Or are you talking about Lauren's husband, who just like literally just got put in jail? Her ex-husband that just got put in jail, literally like last yeah. night. We um, <laughs> we missed a, a local restaurant right down the street from my house. Um, apparently, was the site of a nose punching incident that uh, landed Jason Bobert in jail. Do you think Lauren is is on our side? Do you think she'll step up for us with fixed anchors? Um, I don't. I don't know. She's <laughs> such a dumbass. I can't even imagine what goes anyway, on. Lauren's on Lauren's side. Um, Lauren is on Lauren's side. Yeah. Um, maybe if we uh go, maybe we could sweeten the deal if we take her to a Beetlejuice show. We could. <laughs> 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 Who's going to receive the groping though? Are you or is I mean, it me? I'll take one for the team. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so writing in, we, there's a comment uh, links. We'll, we'll give those links to the Forest Service and Park Service pages, or you can like submit a form and, and make a public comment. But what? Yeah, you can find them by going to accessfund.org. Okay, too. accessfund.org. The, the links are right there. It's easy. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. So tell us, uh, why don't you just like give us like some bullet points if if someone wants to like write a letter, like what what are the things that they should hit home in in, in a few short words? Well, first off, um, be polite. Don't don't be insulting. Don't use crude language. I'm. I mean, I think I've managed to get through this whole podcast without saying an uh, S bomb or an F bomb, which is kind of amazing. But not um, me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you 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 gotta you know you gotta be polite it's my about show, it. Though. But just explain to them that um, fixed anchors, uh, well, climbing is a legitimate recreation, uh, recreational use of our public lands, including our wilderness areas. And fixed anchors 
are a necessary part of climbing and that they are responsibly placed and that the system has been working for all of these years and going and upsetting it like this is not the wise way to go and that you are a voting taxpayer and you will be thinking of these sorts of things in the future when you vote and so forth. Um, That's basically what you've got to do. Now, there are some very specific points that the Access Fund has laid out on their website. And if you want to you want to write a, you know, based on those points, you could write a very lengthy thing that that would get read. They do read them. Um, but the basic idea is politely say that this is an opposition point to climbing and climbing is legitimate and that you are opposed to this and you would like to see climbing be and anchors be considered a legitimate part of our wilderness system. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, isn't it? It's, it's also just about, you know, regardless of what you say, um, numbers. I mean, if, if they see a large yeah. constituency, um, then that has political value. So it's kind of like that. I mean, that's why I've been saying it's like write a sentence that you think le- climbing is legitimate and fixed anchors should be allowed to be placed by climbers. You know, go further if you want, but get it in there. Take five minutes and do it. And it's just yeah. another little straw on the pile. Um, and says, and don't that, copy and paste. You know, yeah. don't find someone else's letter and and do that because they do pick up on that. Um, you, know, you got to show a little effort, but they make it easy to do it. You know, you go to the you go to the national park website, and there's like there's a form, and you put your name in and all that stuff, and then you you submit your comments, and that's it. You don't have to, as we used to, get a letterhead and you know type it out on a typewriter that you got to go back and. Use some white out to get rid of it. Yeah, you know, it's I'm old. I don't. White out the f bombs. <laughs> it's not like that. Yeah. <laughs> if you're gonna use an f bomb, do the little like uh, thing where you use like the the dollar sign and the right the point like f hashtag. Dollar sign, yeah. The hashtag. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and uh, this is open. They they actually extended, I believe, the the comment period. It's open until the thirtieth. And and. I mean, am I getting into conspiracy theories if I'm wondering why this like popped up in the dead of winter when like no people are thinking about rock climbing? Is that a coincidence or uh, just uh, was that part of the part of the attempt to get it to fly through without anyone noticing? Well, you're not paranoid if it's actually happening, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, you know, Um, I'm not, but... I would not be surprised if I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but I think if some big scandal is happening in your political party to release it on Friday evening at seven o'clock so that you don't have to deal with it until Monday morning, I think that happens a lot. Right. Uh, so in this case, yeah, let's do it over Christmas. No one will notice. And how many um, of these wilderness so watch people have been to Epstein's Island? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's what we got to find out. We need to get some dirt. That, what was that lady's name? <laughs> no, no, we're not doxing anyone. I'm not suggesting that. Um, anyhow, but let's go out here uh, on on how much we love the BLM. <laughs> it's like, and that's kind of a Western thing. I know the East Coast listeners are like, I don't know what that is, but uh, let's just like give a cheer for the BLM. I mean, you can you can place a bolt and then shoot at it if you want. You know, you can like. <laughs> Peel out below the wall on your four wheeler and like whatever you want to do. We do. <laughs> the we, there are wilderness areas on BLM land, though. They're called what? wilderness study areas. Oh man, 
no. Sorry. I know the BLM has their own issues um, <laughs> with bolting, but you know what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, Sam, how likely do you think um, climbing is going to be and virtually ended in, in these areas? With uh, <laughs> Is this likely to pass? What's your prediction? I actually don't know if this is likely to pass. I don't understand... Do any of us really understand the politics of our country anymore? I mean, it's, I I don't, you know, who's who's going to get on the side of this, you know, and and then who's not going to get on it because they got some other bill that they want to go through and all this sort of stuff. Um, I I don't know, but I I know this: if climbers do nothing, it will go because because then they're going to hear, you know, oh well, we hear from these wilderness watch guys all the time. It's only five people, but you know. We heard from those five and we didn't hear from any climbers. So yeah, go ahead. Just do it. No one's going to be mad. You got to have your voice heard. If you don't have your voice heard, if you don't make sure that your voice, you don't have a voice and you might wind up with a big surprise on your, you know, the next time you want to go someplace and, and do a route and find out there's, there's no anchors on the route. It's totally possible that this could go through. So we do need to actually say something. It's, it's being pushed from the top not being pushed from the bottom. And that makes it a serious threat. I would say the biggest threat to climbing since I started getting involved in access. Uh, so it's legit, but how percentage chance it's going to happen. Can't give you that. You'll have to talk to Lauren at the theater tonight. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Genevieve Walker is a professional climber and climbing guide who is working to promote greater access and representation for underrepresented groups in the outdoors. Her recent expedition to Malawi worked to develop and empower the local climbing community. So it's pretty common to think of Americans as geographically illiterate. You know, they do these things on the street or whatever where they ask people where a country is and they're like continents away from it or, or whatever. But I think that we could be forgiven to not know exactly where Malawi is just off the top of our heads. You know, we know it's in Africa. I knew it was Eastern Africa, but I literally looked at a map today to, uh, to figure out, you know, which countries it was sandwiched between there and whether it was coastal, um, which it's not. So um, maybe start with that. Like, tell us about, you know, just what you know about Malawi and maybe frame it in the sense of, what you knew beforehand before this uh, opportunity to go over there and climb came up? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I didn't know much about Malawi. I didn't know where it was. Um, I had to look that up as well because mm -hmm. <laughs> my ge geography is not the greatest. But yeah, so it is in Africa. It's like on the southeastern side. Um, it's not coastal, but cool fact that I found out was like a third of the country is made up of a lake. Lake Malawi. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw is, that too. It's amazing. It's a huge lake. It's yeah. <laughs> huge. Yeah. We got to go take a trip to the lake for a day and just like the aquatic life, the scenery is is beautiful. But yeah, this was my first trip to Africa. I never thought I'd be able to to visit in my life. And so it was really cool that my first trip over there got to be such an impactful trip. But 
yeah, I had no, I had no idea about like the food, the culture, any of that. I mean, to be honest, I was just really excited to like be in Africa and like be surrounded by a bunch of black people. <laughs> to right. be honest, a bunch. That, that's just hasn't <laughs> been. <laughs> yeah, but, like to not have to like be like the only one. So, uh, but we can go into more detail about it. But like the food was amazing. It was really, really good. The chicken, the fish, um, the culture. It was really lively and colorful and beautiful and the, the people were so friendly which was like a little I wouldn't want to say scary but I just wasn't used to that I wasn't used to like this like really open like welcoming you in right in the beginning like not really knowing you but like taking you in as family and like everybody on the street was really nice and it was just like a really lively beautiful culture it was it was awesome three weeks was not enough and, and correct me you you grew up on the in somewhere like East Coast, Delaware, Maryland, what was it? Where are you New from? York. Oh, New York, okay. Like, right. Yeah, grew up uh, mid-state New York in Kingston. So it's like two hours north of the city. And for all the climbers out there, it's about one exit up or like half an hour north of the Gunks. But yeah, yeah, I honestly took New York for granted. I really took like, for me, like where I grew up, it was geographically, it was pretty diverse. Like my actual like, kind of neighborhood where I grew up wasn't but going from that I moved to New Hampshire so like I really took like New York for granted once I moved out of state um but yeah that was just it was a very different um experience for me over there so tell us how this trip to Malawi came up what was the impetus to go over there so I connected with uh, GCI the global climbing initiative originally GCI, the Global Climbing Initiative, is a non-for-profit. Their goal is to kind of equip local communities worldwide with resources that they need to help kind of have them progress or strive in their own local community. And that can look like a lot of things. It can be as small as like a small grant for a couple hundred dollars to get them some equipment, whether it's like bolting equipment, like a drill or bolts themselves to help them establish a, a crag. Or it could be as big as like the trip that we took, where it's like a multi-week trip to kind of get everybody up to speed with like technical stills and a bunch of community development, pretty much anything that the communities need to help them grow. And I think what's really special about GCI is they don't go into these trips with this idea of like them knowing what these other communities need. They really take the time to talk with the leaders from these local communities to see what the leaders think is going to be the most beneficial for them. And then they try to help provide them with those resources so that they can continue to kind of progress long term and not have it be like a one and done type of white savior type of thing, which we I feel like we see a lot of, especially in the climate community. Yeah, totally. So yeah, back to the original question then what what so you were just um you had a relationship with GCI. Yeah, how did it come about that you became a sort of ambassador or whatever you want to call yourself as far as working with with them in Malawi? The local common community in Malawi uh, is called Climb Malawi. They reached out to GCI and originally asked for um, help with bolting and just establishing some new routes um, at their local crag. From there, GCI thought that it would be more beneficial if the local leaders and people within the community could actually learn how to bolt themselves so then they could start doing it themselves and not have to rely on other people. 
from there, they started thinking about like a team. And they reached out to me initially because a lot of the work I do as a guide, especially within the last couple of years, I've been really trying to focus more on my community, like the BIPOC community. And they thought I would be a good fit to kind of be a part of this team to go over there. I kind of was brought in as, I want to say like a project consultant in a way to help develop like some educational programming and just this like structured tool that we could use to get the local leaders and some of the participants um, on the right track to continue their like progress that they're doing over there. So yeah, when they hit me up, I mean, I just said yes. Like I didn't really know the, like, too many details of it. I was like, yeah, I want to go to Africa. Yeah, I want to like help, you know, develop these crags and like connect with this community. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so um, it was a lot. Um, it wasn't like we got everything done in a couple, like we didn't develop everything in a couple months. It was kind of like almost this, I want to say almost like a year long thing that took us a while to get together. Because originally we were supposed to go kind of the beginning of this summer, but funding and things like that, we had to push it back a little bit. But actually, it worked out great. The, the timing was perfect. And we had really great weather. It was like the trip of a lifetime for me. Like I said, it was, I wanted to really work, like I said, within the BIPOC community to so be able to go to Africa and do that. Not just go over there and be like, hey, like, this is what I think you need. Like, let me like provide you with that. It's like, no, I'm going to go over, really make sure I listen and hear what you want and what you need and what you think will help your community grow and be able to provide that and like give them those resources. It was like, it was a dream come true for me. I just like the structure and the way we kind of developed this trip, I'm really hoping can be more of like a foundational structure for like future trips that people take to other countries and can use um, for themselves. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by, um, you know, listening to the local leaders and what they asking. What were those conversations like? The conversations kind of are centered around first, like listening to what a climb Malawi wanted from us. Like what did, what did they want to get out from us? And originally it was just bolting some routes and with GCI, they turned around and said, Hey, like, how can we, give you these resources in a way where we're not just going to go bolt some routes and then bounce. And then like, cool, you have like five, six, maybe 10 new routes. And then what? Like, you're still going to have to rely on other people to come back in and establish more, more routes for you. So that's kind of how the conversation started. It was just hearing what they needed and figuring out a way that we could provide what they wanted in a way that they could still elevate their community on their own and be more independent and self-sufficient. And from there, we realized, okay, we want to be able to teach some people, some folks how to bolt who are like really interested in learning. What other skills did they need to learn to be able to bolt safely, competently? Um, and from there, we realized like, okay, there's still some like basic to advanced technical climbing skills that these folks need before they like actually start bolting themselves. So then that's how we developed this whole um, like three week program. Kind of we started from the basics and went all the way up to some advanced skills. And within that, we had a couple days of just bolting. And it was really cool. Like I started with just a week of just technical skills and made sure everybody felt 
comfortable and confident being on the wall, swinging around, doing different transitions and stuff. And from there, by the time we got them learning how to bolt, they already had all of those skills like in the back of their mind and they could just focus on bolting. And we got up a bunch of new routes and we actually were able to teach this little, little, little kid. If he was like maybe around 10, he like bolted his first route there, which was really, really cool. So yeah, um, the local um, uh, climbing area that we would go to every day, it was really cool. You would drive in and you had to park in front of this house in this little village. And we had to pay one of the local leaders there, um, the village leader money so that they could like watch our cars and all of our stuff for us. And from there, we had to like hike through this like really beautiful, I think it was a cornfield. And like all the little kids in the little houses would like follow us up just because they were curious to see what we were doing. And every day, the same kids would follow us up every single day. And by the time we got to the bolting, um, one of the little kids was like really, really interested in like just learning. And some of the, the leaders from Climb Malawi actually like took him under their wing and was able to like teach him and got him up on the wall. And it was it was a really beautiful experience to just kind of see like everything we taught them was now being transferred to like somebody else. It was like this whole like teaching them how to be a mentor and watching them become these mentors in their own community is like it was just so beautiful. I mean, it's interesting that you went over there to teach what I think is probably like, I mean, it's not really the skill set that's so advanced, but it's like most climbers, they start developing roots like way at you know way into their climbing careers and it i think it's more like a social cultural thing in climbing that you don't develop roots or do new first ascents for a while you know but it seems like you guys just did a like a crash course in it for a lot of people to try to get them the ability to grow their climbing community because i mean it's probably a fairly nascent community like many of these ones that gci goes to um so a couple questions in there is just like what exists as their climbing community you know when you arrived you know, when you're talking about, you know, we have this sense of what a climbing community looks like based on our experience. And I don't think many of us in the U.S. have ever walked into a situation where there's, these are all relatively new climbers or, you know, there's not like a 60 year, 70 year legacy behind them. So tell me, tell us a little bit about this climbing community, um, the climb Malawi people, and, and also just who are the people in Malawi that are climbing? Yeah. So it's a group, a local group based in the Longway. It's a pretty tight-knit group. When when we first got there, Ed, who's like kind of the leader of the group, was talking to us and just explaining like how things work there and how maybe they're kind of different from like what we're used to in the States. Everything is very like family related and family vibes. Like everybody is together as a family. It's It's more of like if one person's struggling, everybody's struggling. So it's really about like making sure that everybody is helping each other out. And like I said, Ed, who's been kind of leading, I don't want to say leading, but in a way has been kind of leading the the group as a whole. Um, he's been the one that's been kind of like taking everybody out on the weekends. And like the really cool thing about Climb Malawi too is they built this really cool like outdoor gym in the middle of the city. It's sick. There's like six or seven walls at all different angles. They have a moon board, they have a little campus board. and it's like the epicenter for the climbing community. Everybody goes there. Climbers who have been climbing there for 
years, newer climbers, expats, tourists, like anybody that comes a long way, that's where you go to climb and you'll go to meet other people. The local climbing community that has been, you know, kind of the heart of Climb Malawi for since it started um, is smaller, it seems like. But yeah, they all just work as a unit. A lot of the folks that I met are college age and a lot of them also don't really have the means to go to the crags by themselves. So a lot of them will just like climb at the gym or they will go as a group on the weekends to the crag with Ed, like helping them with transportation and stuff. And at the gym, they also have this like storage unit full of all the gear you need. So like harnesses, shoes, helmets, anchor gear, anything that you need. So anybody in the climb group who needs gear can just go and grab it and use it as well. So it's, it's a really cool... Like I said, small kind of close-knit community who just brings anybody in whenever. And Ed has already been doing a lot of the bolting. I think most of the bolting, but he also works like a full-time job. So like another also part of our goals for this trip was there were a few folks who have been slowly working up to being more of in like a leadership role, but we really wanted to make sure that for Ed to be able to kind of transition out a little bit more and um, have these other folks kind of take those reins, we really wanted to make sure they were all on the same page in terms of safety, technical skills, like all and all of that. Um, so that was kind of also part of our goal for this trip. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, there's so many other countries. Actually, I think most other countries in the world. It's not unusual to be oriented towards a club or a you know, a group like that. Like I know in France, you know, people don't just go run on their own. It's like they go and it, they meet up with their running group or they, it, it, you know, my friend who lives there from the States is like, yeah, you, everybody's in your groups. You got your, your cycling group and your running group. And, and so it's like not that unusual to have like a, a group thing like that, where it's, it's almost like a club or, or whatever that provides, you know, guidance or, or equipment or whatever. Um, it's just kind of interesting to note how like independent and on our own we like to be in the States versus a lot of other places like that. It's not, it's not unusual at all. What it seemed like, and you know, I don't live there, so I can't really speak on their own experiences, but Climb Malawi, this, the gym, like that community that they're fostering there is the heart of, of climbing there. Like without that, a lot of the folks wouldn't be able to climb on their own. Right. Like they, they use Climb Malawi as their way to access climbing. Um, and through that, they've built this beautiful connection with each other. And some folks live still like in the long way and some folks live in surrounding cities, but they still all have that tight knit bond. And it was really beautiful to see everybody come from all over for like our, our trip and yeah, just like the, the the family vibes that you can just feel. It's just yeah, it was it was different from what I'm used to. Tell us about the the climbing, like the rock. Like, what was the actual climbing like? Um, it seems like there's some tall cliffs there, uh, but it sounds like you're bolting some shorter ones. But what what was the what's the picture of the climbing scene or I've the, even the actual rock? I've even heard Yosemite referenced, <laughs> which I'm, oh, I which I yeah. always make a running joke of. <laughs> Of as soon as that happens, you're like, okay, everybody settle down. But um, yeah, I heard like the Yosemite of Africa or something to that effect. I know the word Yosemite was used. Well, it sounds Yosemite like with this. Rock. It sounds like with this lake there. It sounds like this is the Michigan of Africa. Right. 
<laughs> well, okay. Talking about the lake too. Like when I first flew into the airport, it was funny. I got there and the first people I saw in the airport was like this, like, it was like a white family. And I remember like looking at my friend and I was like, like, who else? like I didn't know that Malawi was like also like a tourist hub because of the lake. I had no idea. And I was like, what if-? and they looked like they were, they were in like their like little flower shirts. Like they looked like they're about to go to the beach. And I was like, where are you going? Like, I, like from what I know, there's not much here. And then I found out like, oh, the lake is so big. Like people go there to beach and like snorkel and do this other stuff. I had no idea. But besides like the big lake, yeah, I feel like the rock is is like next, like the next big thing for like their ecotourism. It's everywhere. And right outside of the Longre, like their local crag that we went to that was um, bolted was called Malundi. It's it's not granite. I think it might be kind of like a limestone-esque. Um, but yeah, this that we were at had shorter routes but it was like tiered there was like three different sections along this like cliff band each section or like sector was like very different from the other and then besides Malundi there was the whole outdoor bouldering crag that we didn't get to go to unfortunately but it seems like a lot of the folks at Klamalawi get to go there a, a lot and then outside of that so like our last week of the trip we drove like five or six hours south to another area called Melange. And this was like the, the, the big Yosemite-esque like mastiff. <laughs> this thing was mm, huge. And we went down there to scout and put up a new kind of like multi-pitch line. This is my first time bolting also. And I had no idea like how much work scouting is on its own. And like we, <laughs> there's just so much rock. I didn't know where to start. Like, so it was me and uh, Mario Stanley was like the team. We also had my partner, um, Scott Clark there as well. But Mario's kind of spearheading the like bolting. And so I was just following him around. And oh my God, scouting sucks. It's a lot of walking with <laughs> with your pack. Like, and you just, you don't know. He's like, oh, I think that looks good. And we went there and it was not. And he's like, oh, I think that looks like there's potential. And we went all the way up there and I was like, there's not. I'm like, this was like three days of just hiking. Like, this sucks. Like, there has to be a better way to do this. But it was massive. And the local community down there invited us down there because they just, there was already a couple of multi-pitch lines up. The one mega one, it's like a 12B I think it's like 12 pitches, 14 pitches. And they just saw more and more climbers coming down to their area to climb. They were starting to think about that and be like, oh, wow, okay, like more people are coming down, more people are spending money. Like we want to capitalize off of this. Like we want to bring more people down here. How do we do that? Through bolting. So that was our reason to go down there. But this, this mountain is just, it's huge and there's, there is so much potential, but it's like there's decades worth of bolting on this thing. Unfortunately, we didn't get to do the multi-pitch route that we wanted to do because we were running out of time. But it, it actually worked out for us because the local guides that we were using down there, they were hiking guides. We talked to them and one of the guys, Jeffrey, who was like the owner of the guiding company, he would always hike past this kind of big boulder all the time. And he's the one that recommended this one area for us. He was like, I think this area might work. And we're like, okay, we'll go check that out. And it ended up being perfect. It was like a short approach, 
it had like a steeper side that was really tall, a shorter side that was a little more slabby. And then on the back side, you could just like walk up to the top and like do your anchors. So we ended up putting up five routes on that and they were psyched. They were just psyched that there was actually something that was a little bit more accessible than like a three hour approach to like a 12B, 14 pitch, 12B <laughs> pitch. <laughs> they were just excited to have something that they could show their local friends what climbing looks like. So yeah, it, it, down there in Melange, there's so much potential and I'm excited to go back and, and, and scout more. Yeah, Maybe bring a drone next time so you don't have to hike around. We had a drone and Mario crashed it. Oh. So we didn't have the drone anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that goes. He found I mean... a really cool crag and he got ripped way too close and it just went out of control and yeah, it was done. So <laughs> I, um, what, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's, there's no way around it. Uh, you you got to walk around. I mean, you know, that's just the way it goes. I mean, that's the thing is, is when people are all like, I'd love to put up new routes or start bolting. They don't, they, your, your situation is really common. They don't kind of know how much like this blue collar work it is in the, in the end. I mean, even, especially like bolting on limestone and bolting on steep limestone, which, you know, is common around our part of the, our part of the country. It's like, it's just, it's brutal. It's work. It's like your, your toast afterwards. Um. But yeah, and all the hiking and scouting and all that. But it's fascinating. Like a trend ar- around the world for decades has been a lot of times we're, we're, you know, we're talking about these locals being involved in development. That's unusual. A lot of times Europeans in particular um, in Africa came in, you know, put up some rad line, went home. I'm guessing that's probably the nature of that 14 pitch 12B. You know, and that, like you're saying, it it doesn't leave much for the locals. You know, when you when you're a really good climber, you come in and and your team is psyched to do the biggest, longest, hardest thing, and you do it and go home. Like that's a, a, the 14 pitch 12B is not useful for for anybody, but um, you know, excellent climbers that are usually traveling. Um, and also, there is this like colonial thing of you know coming in from somewhere else and and being the expert and and putting up the roots, and that's been the legacy all over the world for a long, long time. So I think it's, I'm just saying as a comment, it's, it's cool what GCI does and it's cool what you guys did, even though you aren't from there, this idea of trying to build this, um, this framework for them to, to go ahead and build on themselves. Um, and it's so much less egotistical in that sense too. Um, because the going in and you and your two, you know, climbing partners putting up the hardest thing in the country and then going home is, is extremely egotistical, you know, it's about you and, in the glory of your sending. So um, anyway, I, it's not really a question. It's more just a comment on, on the mission. And it's kind of why I wanted to have you on actually was to talk about that aspect of it. Like, don't get me wrong, like bolting and establishing harder routes. There's like a, a, a time and a place for that as well. Mm-hmm. I think my distinction is like, I don't want people going to different areas and like claiming that they're like connecting with the community or like, doing community development and then doing stuff like that, just like bolting these like really hard routes for themselves. Like it's at the end of the day, like what are you really doing for that local community? Like, have you even like had the conversation with them to see like what they need or what they want? And like, what are you doing to help them become more independent? So they don't have to rely on us coming back and doing these things. Um, And I think that's the difference that we were trying to do for this trip. Um, because I do see that often and it does hurt when I see that when, especially like climbers like, oh yeah, I'm going to go 
do some community development. I'm like, what are you actually doing? Like, put, even putting up like five tens, that's really not helping the locals who are like really new to climbing. For you as like a 513 climber, maybe you think 510 is moderate, but that's really not that moderate. Like just, you know, just like step outside of your bubble for a sec and really think about like what you're doing, what kind of impact you are actually making. Because like I said, cool, if you want to like build some hard routes, that's fine. Just like call it what it is. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think sport climbing is kind of finding its its uh, footing on this specific topic a little bit, like, but mountaineering has decades of this kind of uh, phenomenon of of people, you know, loosely attaching some kind of community development mission to, you know, doing the first ascent of some peak. And it's like very only nominally about like supporting the people of that country or place. And it's, it's obviously much more about being able to do a sick first ascent on a, you know, virgin mountain somewhere. But there is, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, privy to some of these conversations about just budgeting and finding money to like, you know, go on like a cool trip or adventure somewhere. And inevitably there is that instinct to want to put some, it's like, well, let's just bring Honold in and he can free solo something and we'll make a video of that. And that'll be, it'll like pay for itself, you know, like, or we, there's, it, it always like comes back to that need to attach some kind of sickness to the to the climbing expedition that you're going on. And I think it's good to highlight trips like yours or that's not, that's like explicitly kind of not the the purpose. It's very much about the people and the, and the community and, and really doing, like you said, like having the conversations to listen to what they need and doing that for them. And yeah, I, I find that to be a, an encouraging trend in our sport in general, but it's good to, yeah, I think Chris and I were just like really psyched to highlight your, your trip, especially because that was so clearly the 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 stated case. Yeah, and thank you because I also feel like sometimes people automatically assume like it's a financial thing, like people just need money or gear, and like you know sometimes that is the case. But I think like it's also important to think of other ways that you can help, and sometimes that is just sharing the knowledge that you have, whether it is as a guide, as myself, being able to like help teach others how to be more safe and how to become a mentor. I think learning how to be a mentor, especially in a community that's just starting to, you know, kind of figure out themselves, I think is super important. Being able to learn how to teach others and connect with others and like be a little bit more soft. And I think all those skills are really important as well. Like we definitely did bring gear with us. Um, cause that's also an important thing, but like, I didn't think that that was honestly the most important part. Like they they already had a lot of gear. They could always use more gear, right? But like if they don't have the tools to use that gear safely, like well, then what's the point? <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's like we're not really doing our job. So yeah, like I said, I I think there's a time and a place for Alex Honnold to go over and just like climb something really hard and like like make that film and be like, yeah, like let's highlight this area, but. Because some people like that. Some people just want to see people like climb the NAR. I mean, I still like seeing those kind of films, right? But like, I do think that there is like this whole other space that needs to be filled where people are actually like really connecting with the community and actually doing this type of work. I just don't want yeah. that, that side of things to be like overseen. 
totally totally throw agree. Honold under the bus too hard. Like, well, I, I was just going to say I, I don't okay, want cool. I don't want to I don't want to I'm come off like I'm dissing Honold cuz cuz he does a lot of work in these places too, Yeah, no, uh, he's awesome. He's so. he's really great. Um He's he's as as good as a, an ambassador to our sport as as we could. We don't really like hope doing for, a but... show where we don't mention Honold though, just for SEO purposes. So yeah, no. we try to get his name on every show. My, my so point was my point AI was just bots to... can sc- can uh, can scour our show and find that in the transcript. Yeah, no, <laughs> my point was just merely to just echo what what Genevieve just said, which is the the, the other side of it that often gets uh, doesn't get the spotlight. But one fraught issue that you kind of mentioned um, in passing was this idea of tourism. And um, that's certainly an interesting concept to think about and the ways in which it can support a local economy of some kind. But there's, you know, obviously pluses and minuses and ways it could go really badly or or create problems that were sort of unintended. I'd be curious to hear you tell us a little bit more about how you see the tourism side of malawi climbing going forward in the future what if there's anything that you're concerned about what are the ways that you think that this could actually be a a benefit to the community within climb malawi there's already been a lot of interest from a few folks who wanted to step up and like actually become guides at some point right now i don't believe there's an accredited certification within malawi um, so that's something that we'd have to figure out later down the road because we, we'd want to make sure like if that is something that they're going to do in the future, that they're doing it in a way that is safe. Um, but yeah, they seem really psyched about having tourism come in, especially in Melange, the place that's like south of the Longway. They're the ones that reach out to us because they want to see an increase in ecotourism. Down there, um, hiking is really big for them. So you get a lot of people from out of the country who come in and just get guided to hike because a lot of the hiking out there, it's not really kosher to do by yourself. It's kosher to hire a local guide. So a lot of people go out there, hire a local guide and just hike around. But with more climbers coming in, even the climbers, so the climbing that you have there, it's like a two plus hour approach. So you still need a hire guide to get you out there. And they're, like I said, they're just seeing this like increase of people coming out and hiking this mastiff and, and climbing this mastiff. And they, they want more tourism down there. Um, they want to see more people coming in and spending money, but they want to do it in a way where like they're still like in control and it's not going to be a bunch of Americans, Europeans coming in, starting guiding companies, you know, starting businesses, because at the end of the day, like that is taking away business from that local community. And that's what we don't want to see. So if we can help jumpstart them even just a little bit, I mean, that's, and that's what we're trying to do. This trip, there was so much going on in the three weeks we had. It, it went by so fast. And this wasn't like a one and done trip. Like our whole plan is to kind of make this like a five-year plan. So we're trying to go back next year um, and kind of build on what we've done this year. Um, so the whole ecotourism part like we didn't really get to focus on too much this year because we're still building that foundation. And like, this takes time. You can't really do this all in like one or two trips, right? So um, even this for this past trip, we just started having the conversation with some locals down there to see like how they think we as climbers could help build that community in a way where like they are taking control of that. Even if that means just like having like, 
a hub where like anybody that climbs in like this is where you stay and like this is where you can like rent gear like even just starting with something simple as that you know like these are like this is like a good guiding company to come through even if they're not actually guiding you climbing even just like actually guiding you to all these different climbing areas even just starting as simple as that and then building from there like i said we bolted a a smaller crag in um, melange that has about five routes now but folks that we've been working with who are down there still don't really have we don't feel like are ready to be bringing people to that crag so like there's still a lot of work that we would have to do before we would even feel safe having them do that so like we were thinking for next year, even focusing on just like establishing a, a good boulder area because there is so there's so much potential for for bouldering down there. And I think that could be like a good stepping stone instead of just being like, yeah, we're going to go down there and like pull all these crags when like no one really down there has those skills to like guide that stuff. At the end of the day, like what's that really doing? So I think if we can at least establish like a really good bouldering area to start, like that might be a good way that we can really integrate like the local community in a way that you know they could still benefit from it. I'll embarrass you now. Um, were you were you enough of a sort of like known quantity celebrity, you know, just with with whatever following you have on social media and stuff like that, to for the people there to be like, oh, we know who you are, we're psyched. Come on in. Did people have like a recognition of who you were and, and think of you as as like uh, some cool climber from from the U.S. when you showed up? Hell no. No. Really? I don't even have that much of a following. But there is a girl, Shalom, <laughs> who is like going to be the lead, like one of the leaders there. Like she's amazing. I was already talking to her before I came okay. and she was like so excited to have me down there. And the moment we got there and we arrived at the climb center, I just remember her like getting out of the car and we just like ran at each other. At least like I, that's a cool thing about social media in a way. Right. Like you might not meet the person, but you feel like you already know them. And we were just right. like, ah, and it was, it was great. But like everybody else, like that first day they came in, they gave us hugs. They were so excited to have us there. And like, even though like our cultures are different, I think just having climbing as this kind of common denominator and I think honestly, the fact that we're all like, not just people of color, but we're all black. Yeah. I'm like, I'm from the States black and they're like African black, but like, just even like, I think them seeing us, seeing them in us in a way, I think already like built that like connection in a way. And that was like really cool. I think that was one of the big things and important things that I wanted to do going into this. Like I wanted to make sure that like, if we're going to be working with a bunch of Black folks who are in this climbing community, I want to make sure that the leaders that are going there to help facilitate this are also Black. I want them to be able to see themselves in us and be like, you know what? Yeah, maybe one day I could be a guide. Or like, yeah, maybe one day I could be a teacher or a mentor or something like that. And I think that's something that was special in itself. And like I said, the moment that we all met for the first time, there was just like this instantaneous connection that we brought us all together. And like, we we met, we we drove the two hours to the crag and the whole drive down, it felt like we knew each other for years. <laughs> it was great. And so who was on the climbing crew that went with you to Malawi? So it was a small crew. It was me, um, Mario Stanley, who does a lot. He's been climbing for like 20 plus years. He's a route setter. He's put up a bunch of routes, um, a trainer. Fellow um, podcaster. Yes, and a podcaster, and yep. just like overall, like King of Stoke. He was kind of the forefront for a lot of the bolting and like route establishment we were doing. 
Um, and then my partner, Scott Clark, came as well as kind of like photographer, videographer, and then also like helping a few folks um, with some like photography mentorship as well. Um, and what was really cool about the whole trip too is so because Scott was there, him and Mario were able to get like a bunch of footage. And right now Mario's um, editing a film to kind of showcase the trip and really highlight uh, Klai Malawi and just the cult, like the community over there as a whole. So we're really psyched about that to come out, hopefully in February of next year. And we're using that as like a way to fundraise for like our next trip in 2024. So this is kind of like our way to continue the, the work that we've been doing from this year onward. When I talked to Prerna Dangi, who is an Indian climber, works with, with GCI, um, you know, we talked a little bit about gender equality and, and like who climbs in India. And they have, you know, they have CLAW going on over there, this, um, this women's climbing initiative to try to get more women into it. Um, I've also talked to Peter Natule from Kenya. And he was mentioning how they have actually, you know, he said it feels like, uh, at least in the city, people coming from the city are sort of 50-50 on, on uh, sort of gender equality. Is that the same in Malawi? Like, what's going on with um, who's climbing as far as women and men? And, you know, as far as the society is concerned, a lot of times can influence that, which is sort of the problem in India of getting women out climbing that claws run into. It's just seen as sort of a stigma that women don't go out into the into the natural world and get dirty and things like that um and they've had to break that stereotype what's it look like mm -hmm. in malawi well with my experience and again it's just mine I, I can't always speak for myself but the majority of the folks that were climbing were were men but we did have two girls that were part of the community and that joined us uh shalom and celebrate and shalom i think has been climbing a lot longer so she already, I felt like had more of like a mentor role with a lot of the, the guys that were there. She already knew a lot more. She was way more advanced. She had the, she was strong, like really strong. And then Celebrate was a little newer, but like was picking things up really quickly. And I'll never forget this. There was a moment a couple of days into the training where we were all just kind of climbing and practicing some skills. And I was climbing with her off to the side and she just asked me if I climb with girls back at home. And I told her like my immediate climbing group is mostly guys. That's just how it is. Um, I try to seek out girls, but it just naturally happens. I'm just around men all the time. But, you know, I told her like I try and, and she was just saying that like, she was just so happy to be climbing with me. Cause this isn't like something that she gets to do often. And she was so psyched to see me climb so strong. And it like almost made me cry. And I'm like about to cry because it was just something as little as that, I feel like it's just so touching. And to be able to make even just a little bit of a difference in one person's life is, is huge. And to see her transformation from like day one, where she seemed a little bit more timid, a little bit more quiet. She definitely putting kind of a little bit of space between her and the group in a way where she knew that she felt like she was more of a beginner. I definitely was like trying to empower her throughout her, myself and Shalom was both like, you know, we, we would push her. She would like get up something and she would want to come down. I'd be like, are you sure? Like, just, just keep going where I think maybe in the past, and I'm just making the assumption that maybe she didn't have that push or that encouragement as much. And by the end of the week, she was crushing it. Like she was picking things up really fast. She was getting to the top of route. You could just see her confidence 
was shining brighter than in the beginning. And I honestly think like sometimes that is just like climbing with other people that you connect with. And for her, I think it was just like being around other women. And even if that was just me, I think just seeing another woman in a leadership role, like teaching men, I think was really important. And that's another thing too, is like a lot of my guiding, for a lot of my guiding career, I mostly was working in like women-centered spaces. And I loved it because like the vibes are different. We're just chilling. We like joke around and talk about things. But on the other side of that, like, I also do think as a woman guide, like it's important for me to also work in all gendered spaces. I think it's really important for men to be able to like see women in these leadership roles and like learn how to really take direction and respect women in these leadership roles. Hey folks, do you absolutely love every word you hear on the run out? Agree with everything we say? And do you think we understand climbing better than you? Wait, did you just say yes? Well, then we're not doing our job. You see, we want the run out to be just like the name implies. A little risky, not for everybody all the time, but damn satisfying when we don't crater. We love it when you disagree, call out our bullshit, but are entertained nonetheless. No other climbing media has quite the same attitude. So we'd love for you to join our community and support what we're doing by becoming a rope gun at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. We can't do this without you. And if we do end up needing sponsors, well, we'd likely have to cut back on the dildo jokes, the cackling, and the controversial opinions. And you don't want that, do you? As a rope gun, you also get bonus material, have more of a say in what we say, and you keep this thing alive and independent. So join today at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Colorado climber and musician Kyle Ward has been featured on the runout once before as a member of the band Dry Mouth. On today's final bit, we feature the eponymous track from Kyle's new and first EP, Get Going, which is available on Spotify.
just listened to another episode of the run out podcast if you like our show the best way to support us is by giving us money we don't care about itunes ratings you can share it with your friends or don't whatever but we are 100 percent listener supported because we believe this is the best way to stay independent say what we think and be accountable to the most important people in our lives which is you our listeners to support our show check us out on patreon it's patreon.com slash podcast for as little as $5.14 a month, you can become part of the Runout Nation and get bonus episodes that will titillate your ear holes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.